This is the current federal tax developments for the week of March the 28th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Mid Zollers and coming to you this week again from Phoenix. And we're going to take a look at a few things this week that took on during the week. First, we're going to take a look at the IRS uh, releasing the valuation figures needed for aircraft. So if you're flying there, you get personal use of company aircraft sort of things. That valuation will be here, including some extra numbers that those from the commercial sector will need. We'll also talk about an IRS released a fact sheet this week that talks about the taxation of crowdfunding and specifically came out and noted about the changes in the requirements to file Form 1099-K this year and why a lot more people will be getting notices on such people who got involved in a crowdfunding project. Let's say people who are receiving money on a crowdfunding project are going to be receiving a lot more notices this year, and so we need to briefly discuss the taxation issues and how they work. We also are going to go back and the Ninth Circuit affirmed a legal settlement was taxable income. This is a case we discussed last February uh, that related to a woman who had an award from a law firm uh, related to what she claimed was legal malpractice in handling her personal injury case. And we'll talk about why the fact that malpractice payments to her for supposedly not properly handling a case that would have almost certainly resulted in excludable income did not result in excludable damages in this case. And finally, we'll talk about uh, the kind of error that you really hate to make. We'll talk about a company that lost and specifically, hopefully give you a little bit of a reminder about the fact we got added de minimis benefits but talk about a company that got on the hook for over a half million dollars in penalties for essentially making a foul up in how they entered information on forms 1099s that they were filing for a lot of people and how the issue was using a dash when they shouldn't have used one caused a problem and then how a failure to respond made that problem a bit worse. They're not done yet. They haven't really lost the case entirely yet. There are still issues they're raising, but they didn't get this uh, basically the kind of immediate dismissal of the penalty. Let's say, you know, essentially getting a vote, you know, basically getting the ruling from the court for summary judgment that they should not be subject to the penalty. So we'll talk about why and what happened there. But let's go to the first thing this week, which is the IRS released uh, the standard industry fair level rates for January 1st of 2022 to June 30 in Revenue Ruling 2022-6. This came out on March the 31st. Now this rate, we have three rates have been issued since the CARES Act. And we have different rates there due to relief program for domestic carriers. And depending upon which types of relief you got, you may have to use one of two alternative valuation methods for flights for those in that area. And essentially, if you're not aware how this works, this is a deduction or basically evaluation that's allowed for employee use of the planes. Now, don't forget, there is a problem here if that person is a control employee because certain control employees, your deduction for expenses of operating that flight will also be limited to the amount of the inclusion. It used to be, and this goes way back, 
and you really haven't kept up if you weren't aware of this change like decades ago, but it used to be, or maybe at least two decades ago, I believe at this point, uh, it used to be you could make a killing with this because it usually costs way more to operate the plane, especially if there weren't a lot of people on it, than the SIFL rates would have put in their W-2s. Now they're saying, okay, we're not going to change the taxable amount of the employee, but we are going to say that your deduction is limited to these amounts. So these amounts do become somewhat, shall we say, important as we go through this. Now, the amounts that we do have, and this is the Revenue Ruling 2022-6. For those of you watching the video, we've got that up on the screen right now. This is the actual ruling that came down. And what we have is our different rate charges. Now, the standard rate charge is going to be for 24.6 cents per mile for up to 500 miles for the flight. 18.76 cents per mile for 500 to 1500, 501 to 1500 miles per the flight. And once you go over 1500 miles, it will be 18, 18.03 cents per mile. And you add to that the terminal charge of 44.98 to get the value of the flight. Now there are a couple of additional ones here. There is the SIFL CIFL rate adjusted for basically PSP grants. That was the program that was meant to give a benefit. About $25 billion was allocated the programs to give benefits to the carriers. Now, if all the carrier got was a PSP grant, then the valuation goes, in this case, $18.53 per mile, up to 500 miles, 14 14 cents, 14.13, I say, not $18, 18.53 cents per mile for up to 500 miles, 14.13 cents per mile for 501 to 1500, and 13.59 cents per mile for over 1500 miles, with a terminal charge of 33.88. Now, if you got both the PSP grants and promissory notes, then the rates change to at 500 miles, 16.11 cents per mile, at 501 miles, 1500 miles, 12. 12 cents, 12.28 cents per mile. And for 1,500 miles, 11.81 cents per mile with a terminal charge of $29.45. So those are our special rates that are involved in that area. Okay, let's go ahead then and move forward now and talk about the IRS's notice on crowdfunding. This is IRS fact sheet 2022-22. And this came out on March the 21st. And this particular ruling discusses that a Form 1099-K will now be issued if the amounts to be distributed exceed $600. And that'll be true if there is an organized, you know, crowdfunding programs like GoFundMe. Sometimes the money goes to an organizer that then disperses it to various places. Or it might go to an individual. Say you have a crowdsourcing issue. Uh, where you've gone to a GoFundMe or something to obtain some sort of, let's say, they're raising money to pay for medical expenses of someone who was injured in some way, shape, or form. That would go then back. If it's going to go to that person, then the 1099K is going to go to the person that received the payment. Same thing as if it's going to, let's say, you're doing this, you know, I'm going to do this wonderful new thing. Right, and we're going to have you go ahead and I'm going to do this wonderful new thing, develop this wonderful new product, and you really, really want to develop. So you go ahead and you help fund me to give me the money to go in. 
uh, I'm going to get the note about this money and its funding. Now, it will talk about, as we'll see here in a second, the treatment of the money raised through crowdfunding and as well reminds us that we should keep records for three years. Now, the actual notice that we're looking at here, uh, this is it, the fact sheet 2022-20 from March of 2022. And the first thing, as I said, it does discuss the fact that we're going to be seeing more 1099-K information, reminding you that last year, in 2021, you had to essentially exceed $20,000 in gross payments, resulting from 200, more than 200 transactions or donations. So if the amount that was raised was less than 20 grand, or it was less than 200 transactions or donations, they had not gotten a 1099-K. So my guess is not a whole lot of people who went on GoFundMe that put some sort of project together, you know, to raise money, to pay for some medical expenses or things like that, may not have gotten 200 people to donate, may not have gone over 20 grand, so there'd be much less happening. Now for 2021, right? Calendar year is beginning after 2021. The threshold is going to be lowered. And this is now going to be $600 in gross payments, regardless of the number of transactions or donations. So for this year, we're going to see a much lower trigger number. There have been some discussions in Congress about maybe that's a little too low and the IRS may get inundated with these notices. So we'll see if anything comes of that. They're going to move these you know, third-party operations to a somewhat different number. But what they do remind you is a couple of things. First, you may not recognize the filer on the phone. That is the payment processor used by the crowdfunding website. Ran the website itself, will issue the K, and it'll be the filer on the form. If you don't recognize that name or address, uh, you should be use the filer's telephone number to contact about why you got it. It also talks about how you're going to get the distributions. And remind you, getting a 1099-K does not necessarily mean that the amount is taxable to the person receiving the form. The tax consequences depend, as noted, on all the facts and circumstances. This is something the IRS had discussed previously. We had talked about this, I think, a couple of years back. The IRS had issued a notice regarding, it may have been a chief counsel advice on the tax aspects of crowdfunding. So... You know, the idea is, well, we know is you got this money. It could have been for a taxable transaction. It could have been for something non-taxable. But whatever it is, you've got some explaining to do, right? You'll have to explain why they were not reported on your return if you do not put it on there. Now, tax treatment of fund money raised through crowdfunding. Uh, as this notes, and this is what gets people confused, Clients all the time said, well, no, 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 this is brand new. It's never been done before. Congress obviously didn't tax this because there's nothing in the tax law that says money received from GoFundMe is taxable because GoFundMe didn't exist, right, at date X, you know, whenever we start this brand new system. And you'll hear that about crypto. You'll hear that about lots of things saying, oh, it's not taxable. Now, sometimes because of things like crypto, uh, the theory is it's not taxable because they can't find it, supposedly. Bad news is, turns out they actually can in way too many cases, as some have discovered spending some time in the federal pen on the issue. But the other flip side of it is that the bottom line, as this notes here, is under federal tax law, Code Section 61, 
All income from whatever source derived is taxable unless it is excluded. So here's the catch and what you and your client have to understand. It is not up to you to show the client where in the law this income would be taxable. Show them section 61, it says everything's taxable. The burden is on you now to find a reason why it isn't not to find some place that Congress specifically worded this. By the way, this is normal for almost every type of a tax statute. Uh, you'll see an identical thing uh, here in Arizona, I know, if you look at our transaction privilege tax, long-winded way of saying sales tax. Yes, I know there's a technical difference between the two, but in any event, just for everybody else, just call it sales tax. Uh, it essentially says everything's, every transaction is subject to it. And then there are exceptions, which go on forever at this point. But that's how you write the law. So if we develop some new way and some new transaction, it's presumed to be subject to that tax. If you develop some new transaction, some new way that results in an, basically a somebody receiving wealth, then that's presumed to be a taxable transaction unless you can find exclusion in the code. So the real issue is, it is far more likely some new setup is taxable than it is not, even if Congress might later decide to exclude it from tax, because by definition, new things come in. Now, as a note, if you solicit money on behalf of others, the organize, you know, the amounts raised may not be included in the organized gross income if they distribute the money raised to those from the crowdfunding campaign is organized. And as I say, if it's made as due to the contributor's detached and disinterested generosity, right? And without the contributors receiving or expecting to receive anything in return, those amounts would be gifts. If you meet both of those, those are going to be gifts. Gifts are excluded under the code. There's a specific exclusion of gifts from taxable income, right? Uh, now, if those, if we're not doing it due to, so, you know, if it's not being done due to detached and disinterested generosity, those aren't gifts. And if there are contributions to crowdfunding campaign by an employer to or for behalf or on the benefit of an employer, generally includable in their gross income. So some examples there. Let's take the, the disinterested generosity. You talk about a crowdfunding campaign. There was an individual, let, let's say, who was seriously injured in an auto accident in the neighborhood. And their friends, family, acquaintances put together a campaign to raise money to cover their medical bills, right? And to basically also help them, you know, with their loss of income. In that case, if I contribute to that fund, I'm not going to get anything except potentially feeling good about doing it from it. Well, the recipient of those funds will not have taxable income. Those are gifts. Now, the one thing our clients get confused about is they'll then want a charitable contribution for that. And sorry, that's not how that works. Uh, you can't really do those contributions to GoFundMe campaigns for the benefit of a single individual are not charitable contributions. You want charitable contributions, you have to give to a charity. And then a charity would have to manage various payouts and make decisions. And they have to worry about private inurement rules and all those other things that make it a little messier. Uh, but the person receiving it, it does not matter if that payment came from a local church, 
right, who took it out of their general funds because they were going to help this family that has been economically hammered by this accident, or whether it comes from a GoFundMe campaign where, you know, a thousand people all generated, let's say, $10. So $10,000 goes to this person to help pay for their uninsured medical bills. That's not taxable. Flip side of that, like they say here, now what if I, yep, my, my firm, okay, I don't want to actually pay for this person's, you know, uh, let, let's say cover their loss of income, et cetera, as an employee, but you know, I, I want to see them, I want to see them paid for it, but I don't want to do it myself because I'm just going to try to get anybody else to do it. If my, if I, as the employer, put together a GoFundMe campaign for one of my employees, now suddenly it's not disinterested generosity campaigns that we're doing here. Generally, that's going to be included in gross income, right? And probably at least initially taxable to the employer who then gets a deduction on the income. Because what's now happening is I, as the person organizing this, am expecting a benefit. And I'm expecting a benefit because I'm paying this to show my employees what a wonderful person I am. I'm not sure they'll believe how wonderful I am by doing it this way, but who knows? Maybe they'll go for it. And, you know, that would then be a benefit. It's not disinterested generosity. Similarly, if you're saying, hey, I'm going to build this wonderful, wonderful new device. And, you know, but I, I need the seed money to get started. And if I succeed in doing it, then those of you who gave me this money, you know, would you know, re receive this product as a benefit from doing so, you know, and you'll receive it, but you pay this to me now, I'll do that. Well, in that situation, that's not, that's going to be taxable to me receiving the funds. Because again, they're not giving it out of disinterested generosity. They're giving it to accomplish and receive a hope for benefit. It may not be guaranteed. They may, you know, it may turn out there's a reasonable chance it won't work. But the reason they're funding it is because of the potential for that benefit. It also reminds you that record keeping, you really want to make sure you keep records in this stuff. Clients need to understand that. Uh, you know, you need to remind clients about this issue. You need to remind them about these sorts of things. And you probably should be educating clients this year if you're aware they've been involved in doing these sort of, you know, GoFundMe campaigns and collecting money to distribute to some third party. They have otherwise been involved in these issues where the 1099Ks are going to hit them this year. So you want to warn them about that $600 limitation coming into play. Because again, it's not just going to be crowdfunding. That particular $600 rule will also impact like payments for things like Uber drivers and those sorts of issues can also get into that mix. So as I'd say, it is one of those things that, you know, the IRS is noting early in the year. So hopefully everybody will be aware of this. Let's go on and talk about the case now of Deborah Jean Blum versus Commissioner. This is case number 21-71113. It is from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and it came down on March the 22nd. Now, this is discussing a tax court memorandum case that we had in 2021. Tax court memorandum case 2021 18. And that particular case was looking at the fact that she received benefits. She received money in a legal settlement 
from attorneys that she claimed had botched uh, her claim against the hospital. The hospital, apparently, she had had knee replacement, etc., and she was there at the hospital, and they, at some point, asked her to please sit on a wheelchair that it turned out that was actually broken, collapsed, caused her injuries, etc. In any event, uh, the lawsuit did not go in this direction. Now, she claimed, look, I had a lawsuit here that should have been a slam dunk, right? Had these guys done their job, I should have received compensation for physical injuries. And that compensation for my physical injuries would not have been taxable because under Section 104A2, I don't need to pay tax on those sorts of things. But as we'll note, it's tricky to get the 104A2 exclusion to work. And even in a case like this, it actually is a case where this is a problem. Now, you may remember there was a similar case uh, that was not trying to go 104A2 exclusion of physical injuries, you know, basically payments for physical injuries, but was a case where it was the other way you could exclude a an award, you know, a legal award. One of the other key ways is if you're just being made whole for lost capital, that was a legal malpractice case that was looking at the question of, you know, this attorney had botched her divorce, botched the filings, and she ended up receiving less property in the divorce than she should have had it been done properly. And again, in that case, the tax court said, sorry, not excludable. And what the court said, the tax court said, was not excludable because what you received were not damages for physical injuries. The attorneys did not damage you. What you received in the second case was not capital, right? It was not the property settlement. Rather, in both cases, you signed an agreement that said this was for legal malpractice. Receipt of money from a professional for legal malpractice is not going to be excludable generally if that's the only thing we're being told the damage is for. Well, Deborah Jean was not thrilled with that answer, and so they took her, they took this case to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals after having lost in tax court. So now at the Ninth Circuit, this case came down, and as I said, it came down this week, and it was on the 22nd, and this is a Basically, it is a per curiam appeal, which or decision, which means it's not real, it's not binding. It didn't really give us anything new in the law we didn't know before, but it does basically tell us the tax court got this right. They remind us that the tax court, as they said, properly found they were not exempt from taxation under 104A2. As they say, remember what I told you about crowdfunding. This is section 61. Uh, the tax code provides that gross income means all the income from whatever source derived. Back to the bottom line, anything you get that is an accession to wealth is generally considered to be taxable income. That's the starting point for every analysis. You do not have to find a code section that says X is taxable. This section right here tells us X is taxable. What we have to find is an exclusion. Now, one exclusion is under Section 104A2. We do have an exclusion of any damages received, whether by suit or agreement, on account of personal physical injuries or physical sickness. And as we said, in this case, 
taxpayer was injured by that broken wheelchair that a hospital employee had told her to go sit in, which collapsed while she was in it. Now, in this case, as the uh, Ninth Circuit tells us, to exclude income under this rule for physical injuries, we have to show essentially two issues. The underlying cause of action uh, that gives rise to the recovery is based on a tort or tort-type rights. This would be, right, standard tort injuries. And the damages are received on account of personal physical injuries or physical sickness. And it does recommend, which is going to be the key here, there must be a direct causal link between the damages and the personal injury suffered. Okay. In the context of this agreement, right, you can establish that link through the express terms of the agreement or if the agreement is unclear by the intent of the settlers or the payers. Now, and it is the payer's intent, not the recipient's belief. The payer's intent is what's crucial. This is where a lot of legal agreements, a lot of settlement agreements get botched. And the, ta the courts are not very lenient on this. And I realize people think it is excludable, but as I think the courts would tell you, obviously a lot of the attorneys involved in drafting these agreements haven't really been involved in tax practice and just kind of don't worry about it. And why they don't is pretty simple. If you're trying to negotiate, especially a settlement agreement, um, first thing is the party you're negotiating with is probably going to want a very broad-based release. And they're not going to want to admit to anything that might cause other issues or help other parties. So in this case, they're likely the attorney representing you in this particular case of malpractice claim is probably very, very focused on the dollar amount of an agreement that he or she can come up with. And they may be presented with a draft settlement agreement by the plaintiffs. Now, if they start arguing about exact terms in there in detail, that may cause the offer to go off the table. Okay. And we've got the number. The client also now is aware you've got the number. Arguing is going to increase the legal fees, increase the time, make it messier. So there's a lot of pressure to just sign the thing and get it done. Unfortunately, as we'll note in this case, that creates a problem. The express terms of her agreement, right, made clear there was no direct causal link between legal malpractice settlement and her injuries. And I love this. This is in the agreement that apparently her counsel didn't object to. The settlement agreement explicitly states that Blum and her attorneys maintain that Blum did not sustain any physical injuries as a result of the alleged negligence of either of, either of her attorneys. Okay, that's bad. I mean, that, that's a really bad clause in there, right? And the agreement further states was entered to for the purpose of, comp of compromising and settling the malpractice disputes between the parties. They're not going to admit to malpractice per se, but that's the area there. Uh, now it says this demonstrates in it, the settlement agreement was entered to compensate for harm done by legal malpractice rather than the physical injuries and underlying action. So as the court said, the tax court said, the terms make it clear the payment was in lieu of damages for legal malpractice. Uh, when the express terms make it clear, we don't need to look the intent of the payors. So we can't argue that the attorneys were paying it because they realized that she was injured, 
right? And they'd blown the injury, etc. And they want to go to court on that to have to pay for injuries. So, you know, we're not, yeah, that, that's not the intent. We don't care about that. You can argue that all day, but you signed a document when you got paid that expressly said this payment was not a payment to you for any injuries. The law firm was paying you for to settle your malpractice claim. They were not paying you because they had made no physical injuries to you. The tax court said, look, gang, that decides it. The Ninth Circuit said, tax court's right on this one. That does decide it. There's nothing left to talk about. And sad as it is, that's, you know, that's where this case ends up. So, as I say, be careful here with this whole issue. Um, at best, if you can, try to remind your client if they're going to be involved in a legal case, um, and it's not clearly a case of physical injuries, right? It's something that even if it goes back to a physical injury case, but like this, it's detached from the case we're no longer going after the hospital or the party that injured you like you know the person who was behind the wheel of the car you're going after your own attorney for malpractice uh you know we need to look at the agreement in all cases I pretty much say you need to look at the agreement unless it is absolutely without question the only issue here is physical injury compensation and even then you might want to take a look because who knows what got alleged because that's the other hitch usually in the complaint the uh, you know the attorney for the plaintiff is going to throw everything at their you know all kinds of theoretical damages that occur to this person because uh, you never know what's going to stick right well that also complicates matters though when we get to the tax side of it because you allege 322 things reasons why you should be paid only one of them was potentially excludable and there's no evidence this was for that you know, on those lists. So you need to be a little careful when we get into that area, right? It is messy. So just kind of be aware of that. Finally, we're going to talk about the case of RSBCO versus United States. Case number 3-21-CV-01192 from the United States District Court for the Western District of Louisiana. Uh, the case came down on March the 23rd. And what this case did on April 3rd, 4th of 2013, it's actually a typo in the actual court case. It says 20, 2020, which is like, okay, well, somebody got confused and typed it up wrong, but it's there. But on April 4th, 2013, it becomes clear. Uh, the IRS sent an email, or sent basically an email to the taxpayer noting errors in uh, 20,328 information returns. That's about, as I recall, 94% of the returns they had filed that year. And they said you have 60 days to correct this. Now, as we said, that's, that's an issue. It came in. Now, apparently, this was a company that did a lot of information reporting, did it for various companies, took care of it that way. So we're looking at a pretty substantial amount of penalty here. But apparently there was one employee that got put in charge of running this through the fire system. And for whatever reason, nothing got acted upon by this employee until July 16th and 17th of 2013, when the corrected numbers were finally sent on to the IRS. And because that's more than 60 days late, they charged them the late filing fee for these 1099s that had all been late on these information returns, 
right? And that's that's a lot of money. $579,198 was for it. The problem, as they'll tell you, is per the system, they had apparently used a dash in a place where it wasn't allowed. Anybody that's worked with IRS systems knows that the IRS does not like most punctuation. Their computers seem to just totally go crazy if it sees punctuation anywhere. Right, if you've ever done an SS4 online, you know you learned right away, don't touch a punctuation key, because if you do, it's going to complain about it and spit out your attempt to get a employer ID number. We just know that how it worked. Well, similarly here, it didn't like the dash. Now, they're trying to rely on a relief provision, right? And this really had a bunch of different ways we were talking about the case. So this was basically uh, competing motions for summary judgment. The IRS was trying to get certain claims they had thrown out, claiming that, you know, throw all of this out. And the taxpayers were trying to get a judgment stating that these things made it clear they shouldn't have to pay the $579,198. So that was part of it is. And so we had a lot of these. Now, the issue in front of us is simply one issue, and that's going to be this de minimis rule. Uh, and this is where things become kind of messy, and you got to remember things like this. Uh, they were trying to get out, arguing that this is such a minor and ridiculously small item uh, that, well, Congress had an exception. As we'll discover, they were missing one little detail about the exception that turned out to be somewhat significant. One of those things we, we do have to worry about from time to time. So we're going to talk about this. We have this motion. Right. And it's granted in part and denied in part. Uh, this is a motion. The IRS is trying to get everything thrown out. Uh, the court generally allowed most things to go forward, stating that it was not appropriate for summary judgment. And what that means is summary judgment is when the court can just take the case. OK, take the pleadings of the party. Assume all facts. If we did, if we had the facts in the case before us. They would all break in favor of, in this case, the plaintiff, RSBCO. Okay, if they did, would they nevertheless fail to carry the position? They, they don't have enough in their allegations to be able to support the claim. As a matter of law, it's going to fail. So, you know, you go there. So the idea is we don't really need to hold a court hearing on this issue and gather evidence uh, or even have people stipulate evidence. We just need to say, hey, it doesn't matter. Your allegations could not possibly get you this benefit, couldn't possibly justify this action under the provision you're trying. So we're going to throw that out right now. We're not even going to talk about that issue. So that was what was going on here. And the IRS did lose most of it. Now, they do tell us this issue. And again, as I said, there was a typo in there. So while the actual uh, case says April 5th, 2020, it's obviously April 5th, 2013, right? Uh, the filing information returns electronically system, the fire system, sent an email indicating that 20,328 of the information returns that they had, been fi they had filed that year had been marked bad which meant they contained errors and needed to be replaced. It directed the company to correct the bad returns and to resubmit them. And under Section 4.06 of Publication 1220, 
they had 60 days to upload the corrected items. However, they didn't get them uploaded till well after the 60-day period. That was a problem. Um, it explained it timely filed the returns on April 1st, 2013 in six separate batches. However, this year, the fire system had returned 94.22% of the filings as bad. Uh, they surmised the batches likely contained systematic errors in information or were corrupted. It stated it relied on one specific employee to help file the returns via the fire system. And after two subsequent reminder emails were sent from the fire system, this employee finally took action. So the employee just ignored, you know, basically emails for a while and, you know, finally got it uploaded in July. And the company said, well, th this employee was going through depression and had marital troubles during the period. So that's why they didn't act on it. And because of that, we shouldn't be held liable for this. Now, probably one of the things that kind of hurts that will be an interesting problem going forward uh, will be, you know, that it had relied on this one person to do it. And of course, it didn't get done. Now, you know, the court, we talked, there was a court that was dismissed uh, with these. They filed a revised administrative complaint with the IRS because they didn't go to the IRS first. They did that. Iris turned it down. Um, and then they have a bunch of complaints here. Now, like I say, a lot of these, as you're going to see in here, is that, you know, essentially things that the court will say look like Eighth Amendment is a son of reasonable penalty that will require facts. A bunch of others required facts. But one of the big ones here was, okay, was that the statute that assessed the penalty at issue was not applicable and had no statutory authority to assert that. 6721 was used, which authorized imposition penalties for returns were not timely filed. They said they would, and repossessions that were untimely filed. Uh, the court didn't buy that theory, saying, sorry, you, you got to file them right. But they also claimed there was a safe harbor, right? And there is now a safe harbor in form in section 6271, right? Um, you know, if there is a simple, minor, de minimis error that you can be now excused from the penalty, right? And where they have filed, you have meaningful discrepancies, dollar amount stated versus dollar amount owed. The treaty is being filed with all information. No penalty may be rendered. You know, now we get to that. Now, th this is where we would get to that problem. Now we get back to the court looking at the law. And as you look at the law here and they do their analysis, um, you know, we have, you know, them them deciding that this issue that actually looks 6721, um, you know, was in essence there. We've got these allegations for the return. Uh, you know, we can't evaluate the law and the pleading, so they're going to basically deny that, say we got a court. But de minimis errors, this is the one, right? So de minimis errors, and it says 6721C3 requires no correction to the information returned because the occlusion of a dash is de minimis errors. Now, here's the problem. And it's kind of helpful not to make this error. You kind of got to wonder who didn't notice this when they went to court. Remember I told you you like to throw every particular, every possible theory in case something sticks, and sometimes they're not very clean. In this case, yeah, they missed it. As the court, as the IRS noted, again, this is a 2013 filing they're laid on. Uh, the actual law they're trying to rely upon, 6721C3's de minimis rule, 
that wasn't added to the law until 2015. So essentially, as they say, they said the effective date, the amendments made by this section shall apply to returns required to be filed and pay statements required to be provided after December 16th of 20, December the 1st, 2016. Uh, it didn't exist in 2013. For that reason, it's granted. They also, uh, they also claimed there was bad faith by failing to make any attempt to negotiate. The court also dismissed that claim on them. The real takeaway from this, though, is to be aware, yeah, you know, you got to watch for these crazy little rules. And remember, information return penalties now are much nastier than they used to be. So, you know, be careful in that regard. Also, be careful when you get notices from the IRS. In this case, like the fire system, you want to make sure you respond quickly. We don't want to be arguing over whether, because if it did affect the numeric value in some way, shape, or form, now you got a problem even under that rule. So you have issues that get into play in discussions. So, as I say, probably best to make sure you get things filed. But in this case, that didn't work now. The good news for you and for us right now is if you did have an error of this sort this year, that let's say you'd have an error that was de minimis, hopefully not 20,094% of your submissions. Hopefully it'll be something a little more reasonable than that. Uh, but if it's just a small issue here, yeah, you now have this provision that can help get you out of these particular penalties. Now, this week, I do not have articles written on these. Uh, I've decided to do it this way because time is becoming real fun in tax season, especially since Arizona just got out their small business income guidance. And so we just got to now do try to cram the entire tax season into about three weeks. This ought to be fun for us and those of us in Arizona. But I got that going on. So not getting the articles written as much detail, but I will have links to all of these source documents that I will make available so you can take a look at that and go on. You can go directly to these documents, take a look at what's there. So with that, I want to remind you that this has been the current federal tax developments here for the week of March the 28th, 2022. Next week, we enter April. Yes, we're almost there. And the funny part is entering April. It's actually going to be entering April with April being potentially the actual filing date month this year. No sign whatsoever that we're getting these things pushed back later this year. I remember hearing some speculations early back in February. Oh, they're going to push it back again. That was back when Omicron was surging. So rather than January and into February, I remember hearing some, you know, people saying, oh, yeah, it'll be pushed back again, Omicron, etc. Obviously, Omicron fell off dramatically. And yes, I know about BA2. And yeah, we go down that path. But I have a feeling unless BA2 actually shuts down the entire country by overflowing every single hospital in America in the next two weeks, we're probably not going to get a pushback of the filing deadline, just saying. And so I'm going to say probably we're looking at April 18th this year is the real date. So good news, bad news. We are getting to the end of the regular tax season. If you have any questions, you can email me at zollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. I also, as I mentioned, you know, follow along with the Connect sites for the Arizona Society, New Jersey Society, Illinois Society, Minnesota Society, and the Washington Society of CPAs, as well as looking in on posts on Idaho's not Connect, but kind of close to Connect style site. 
So if you're a member of those societies, you can post questions there. And if I can help, I'll try to respond there. Uh, otherwise, hopefully you're having a good tax season. Hopefully you're surviving at this point. We're about to head into the home stretch now, as this week we will run into April. So hope you all are going to make it through that without too much trouble. And we will see you back here next week for more current federal tax developments.